Ladies and gentlemen out there, it is finale time here in Soprano Land. Today, episode 13, An Individualist. What kind of person can I be where his own mother wants him dead? That is a Tony Soprano quote in this, the season one finale of The Sopranos, episode 13, entitled, I Dream of Jeannie Cusimano. This episode was written by series creator David Chase and directed by the great John Patterson. Well, boys, I didn't think we'd make it this far. Ooh, Our boy. podcast had some obstacles and that we worked on behind the scenes, and we are here at the season one finale. What makes a good show? What makes a great show? How they do premieres, how the characters are developed, the stories they tell, and how they do a finale. And now we have our answer. How does The Sopranos pull off a season finale? We're going to talk about it. Let's go around the table. Chris D'Amato. Paul Mantini. Jordan Hugh. And this is the finale of the season of season one of The Sopranos. What do you think, Paul? Jordan? Matthew Weiner, who worked on The Sopranos a bit later on and ended up doing Mad Men, described David Chase as a smash-the-guitar kind of guy. He likes the big ending. And he really did it with this one. Something that's compelling about this episode to me, is that it's not an episode that stands on its own. It's it's an ending. It's an end point. It threads together many of the storylines, and very importantly, I'd say, returns to the storylines of the pilot and threads the, the first series or the first season out in that way and also brings up, I think, a key importance of why Tony was in therapy, which is because of the mother that he had. And this episode is the one in which Melfi through some difficulty, finally helps Tony realize that that's who his enemy is, and then it allows Tony to mark out how he's going to proceed from then on. And this episode, in its madness, in all these different threads flying around, it's fascinating to me how so many of the ways that it shakes out, not necessarily because of Tony's cunning, sometimes because of luck, sometimes because of what the other characters are going through, they all redound to Tony's benefit. Quick example is that Junior isn't necessarily deliberately protecting Tony when he says, my nephew running things, not that strunts, not in this life. He's protecting, I think, his own sense of himself and the Omerta. doesn't matter why he's doing it. Tony benefits. Mm. So that's where I'm at with this episode. For me, I think this is as close to a perfect season one finale as you get. I agree with Paul. It nicely ties all the threads together from the pilot through every episode and brings them to a satisfying close here in the finale. I often judge season finales of television in whether or not it can complete the season in a way that the season is watchable on its own without too much of a lingering question as to the future remaining that forces you into a cliffhanger situation. For me, and I might be alone in this, I think cliffhangers are a little cheap. I -hmm. think that's more like the old school of television. I think now that we're really with The Sopranos moving towards the more cinematic style of television where each season has its own beginning, middle, and end, maybe with some intrigue towards the future. Uh, This is like sort of the perfect example of that. In this episode, without going too much into detail, because we're about to do that, every thread comes to a satisfying conclusion. We have a clear ending. If you wanted, you could watch season one of The Sopranos, finish with I Dream of Jeannie Cusimano, and get off the train. You could just stop the show here. Tony comes to the full realization that his true enemy is his mother. He has worked through at least the psychiatric business, uh, his emotional labor of this episode, uh, of this season. 
Um, he has worked through those things. Everything has come to a satisfying conclusion. The only remaining question is what has happened to Pussy and what remains with the federal indictments and will they go any further. But that is not such a pressing matter in the finale episode that you couldn't just stop here if you wanted to. Yeah. And I think it's very satisfying. I agree. And look, no one knew uh, whether or not the season would get made off of the pilot was a question. There was also no show like this before it. So whether or not this would catch on was also a question. So for all intents and purposes, I, I think they made it with the distinct possibility that this would be the only season of the show. So that's why it ends that way. But to both of your points that this kind of beautifully ties in all the threads from the pilot and, and early on the episode, we get a lot of, uh, we get all great, satisfying, dramatic, awesome conclusion to our main storylines. And we also see a lot of characters that we haven't seen in a little bit as far as the show is concerned. We haven't seen Artie Bucco since Boca. Mm-hmm. We haven't seen Father Phil in a while at this point, since maybe even college, or I think he popped up in one episode, maybe perhaps in between. But, you know, we're getting a lot of these things that have kind of been underlain um, throughout the whole season and wrapped up in an extremely satisfying snug, but still leaving a little room for future intrigue. It, it's great. This is a great finale. And it is, whether or not the first season is perfect, we can talk about that. But this episode certainly is a perfect finale. Sure. This is by the book. Yeah, thinking of the season as a film, the only unresolved plot being the pussy plot, um, it could end that way. A film could end where it's just like, yeah, we don't know what happened to that guy. He's he's gone. Maybe he's on the lam. Maybe he's uh, dead. We, we don't know. It's actually okay that we don't know. What I'm saying is I know that will be the thing that will lead us into season two, but it doesn't necessarily have to. I think this season of television just stands on its own. I agree, and I think that I'm sure we'll come to this later, but one of the the story underpinnings and the image underpinnings for me that support what Jordan is saying is the way the ending is done Mm. with every, with all these main characters coming together and finding shelter from the storm. Mm. There's, there's some ominous quality to it, but we see the power of both families solidified as well as Artie, extending something of forgiveness it seems to tony or at the very least not wanting to confront the horrible reality that he's that has been revealed to him in this episode Mm. so i agree with jordan that particularly in this image system at the end coming in and finding this place where the storm isn't going to get them is a powerful coming together of so much of the series so far and particularly this season in which tony laid out that he thought the threat was that he was going to lose his family Mm. Speaking of storm, by the way, I do want to mention to our listeners that we're recording during an actual storm in this yes. episode. So if you hear rain sounds, thunder, and lightning, uh, that is because we're still coming to you live during an actual storm. Yeah, that's not audio effect we're adding in. I think that's very uh, telling and appropriate that it's happening for this episode. Of that's all. right. Well, I love that. Um, yeah, this is uh, this is great shit. I love this episode. It's a hell of a finale. Let's touch quickly on... The very first thing that happens, which is the uh, Jimmy Altieri hit, we resolve this story. We uh, he suffers the fate of being the worst rat in the history of mob rats. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't even have the good grace to leave it up in the air as to whether or not he was a rat. He basically confesses it in his actions and utterances in the last moments of his life. Mm. Uh, and uh, you know, Chris and Silvio uh, end up uh, doing this hit. Goes off pretty much without a hit. Tony. 
basically gets Junior to sign off on it, and the death contract has been signed, and it's executed. And that's how we kick this off. Death, murder, resolution. We start with a resolution. It's a fascinating place for the episode to begin because it underlines a couple of things. One, I think we see how clever Tony is. To see he and Junior allied on the bigger question of let's find the traitor, finding the the real traitor in the family is going to be a much more difficult emotionally taxing process for Tony but when the way that they've done this is pretty neat and simple as you said also Tony it seems very smart that he showed Junior all proper deference mm. get the permission of the bra- boss which is forthcoming as we say Jimmy is not a particularly good rat he seems to have revealed himself so it's a fascinating place for that story to begin the next thing that happens with Jimmy's murder I also like because Christopher in this episode has become full gangster. He doesn't have a storyline of his own so much, but he has come to center in this place where, again, if we're dealing with the pilot as the opening image, he did that murder, but he didn't do a good job with it. He didn't Mm -hmm. follow it up well. Here he participates in the one murder, does a great job with it. No drama, no bullshit. The second murder, he carries off. I don't lay good odds on Polly Walnuts catching up with Mikey in the woods alone. Mm -hmm. Once Chris gets a beat on you, you're dead. Pussy tells him in uh, Legend of Tennessee Moltisanti, the more you do, the easier it gets. And uh, we're seeing that. Chris has come into his own. One of the first things we see him do in the series is kill somebody. And one of the last we see him do in this season is kill somebody. (laughs) Yeah, I just want to discuss this hit a little bit. I think Jimmy's last moments are sort of important. Uh, The ruse is effective. He really thinks they are just going to be visiting uh, a Russian prostitute Hmm. uh, and having some fun together. And... I don't know if this is just maybe a flaw in Jimmy's personality, but he does not see this as suspicious at all, even Mm. though it's not really been established that he's particularly close to Christopher as a person. I guess they're they're all just friends in the same way that any of these connected guys are friends, but I don't think there was any assumed closeness between Jimmy and Christopher before this. So he goes along. It becomes clear to him that this is a hit, of course, um, and his last moments are not spent begging for his life. Uh, He's very resigned to it. Mm. As soon as he realizes this is a hit... It's more like this, oh no, moment that we might remember from Goodfellas, really, yeah. of just like the, oh, nope, I, I mistook what this was. This is a hit. Well, we, we, we talk a lot about the rules and the rules of this lifestyle, what you can and can't say, boundaries, what crosses lines. The mob, uh, you listen to any former mob guy who speaks out on this and talks about it. It's like they lived and died by these rules. And so when you, when you are, when the jig is up, you know it. There's no, hey, no, I'm not a rat. Because here's the thing. Let's say Jimmy wasn't a rat. He obviously is. But let's say Jimmy wasn't a rat. There's no, hey, guys, hold on. You got the wrong idea here. Let's work this out. Too late for that. If they suspect you're a rat, you're done. Right. It's too late. And he knows that. Yeah, I don't know. If I was him, I, as it turns out, Pussy is the smart one here. If Pussy is indeed a rat, uh, disappearing was the better idea. Because actually doing the work as Jimmy was doing it so inexpertly. And then to be taken in by Chris's offer of a Russian prostitute... It's almost like a, it's almost like the guy deserved to die. I hate to say it, like being that stupid. Well, and there there are definitely blind spots for a number of the characters. I can't add to how you guys took apart that scene. It's great. I just want to mention that it seemed to me starting with that sequence where they bring Jimmy, the ruse, as you said, works. It seems that sex is an exposure point for a lot of characters in a number of places. But I'm thinking particularly in this episode that they use it to get Jimmy to this place where he can be murdered. It's a dangerous, potentially dangerous setup for the Dominican kid, Jeremy, who's making out with uh, 
Meadow, he doesn't want to be caught his <laughs> Dominican ass on top of her on the couch. Yeah. And there's more of it. And so sex being this exposure point comes up a few times in this episode. Yeah. Well, that, that, I mean, that's what comes up next. So let's get into it. Uh, we then get into the main thrust of things uh, as uh, both of the kids are engaging in their own specific sexual discoveries. Uh, <laughs> AJ hammering the shit out of something out of camera view. And, <laughs> <laughs> little horny little bugger. And uh, and Meadow, of course, in her uh, her first and you know very likely last we'll see of this Dominican boyfriend making out on the couch watching TV, and we hear an elderly female voice from the yard yelling, "Satimia, <laughs> Satimia!" Yeah, and God, here we are. Here's Livia right on the Soprano home front. This is uh, <laughs> quite a way to get things going. What do you think? Do do we? Are we expected by David Chase to think that this could even possibly be real? Here's what I'll say, though. This does happen with Alzheimer's, it but does. boy, is the timing super convenient. Oh, here's the thing. The timing is convenient. This is some commitment on Livia's part, though. Oh, yeah. I mean, to walk here? Yeah, miles. <laughs> Fuck. Yeah. I'm not saying she's not capable oh, of Oh, of it. course. But what? enough to attract the attention of the police. The neighbor, yeah. the neighborhood has seen her doing this. She's completely distancing herself from her grandchildren and basically traumatizing them in this. And this is if we're taking this as that it is an act, which I think it is. I think Junior has the right idea here, and so does Tony, for that matter. It doesn't definitively answer your question, and I'm sure we'll have more to say about where Livia is in all this, but it was it was striking to me that AJ is maybe still not quite getting it, this behavior legitimately freaks Meadow out. Mm. You probably notice she she feels like something is really wrong here. Yeah. So it has that overall effect. And it, it's interesting to me because I definitely went back and forth during this particular rewatch of where Livia is at for a couple of reasons. One is that I actually don't think David Chase could resist the irony of Livia, say, actually having a stroke and Tony not giving a shit. Because Tony has been laboring this whole season to get his mother to show any little bit of affection for him, overdoing it. And so then the point when she would actually be sick, that horrible smile that comes across Tony's face at the end is so chilling to me that that's the reading in some way I want to have. But to Jordan's point, trusting Livia would be a a bridge too far, Mm. I think. Mm. So that's where I'm at. I, I might be up and down... On it. Another thing is that if she does have Alzheimer's, in some way I think it might be worse because it still wouldn't let her off the hook for her years of operational borderline personality disorder. Mm. If she's saying this stuff because it's out in the ether, but it still has the same effect, that's still part of who she is. Yeah, I mean, it, in the following scene we go back to therapy and Melfi lays out her diagnosis for Livia. Uh, she reads directly from the manual. She yeah. says, "This is what I this is what I would diagnose her with that she has this borderline personality disorder." And as a viewer, you hear that description and you're like, "Wow, that is that is exactly Livia. That is that is super super accurate." So I think the show leans on us to not take Livia's illness very seriously, at least in this moment. Yeah, I mean, well, rather it it asks us to take her borderline personality disorder into serious account, but not her uh, alleged early onset Alzheimer's. I think it puts us into Tony's shoes, where it's like, once you accept the reality of what it is, of course, here's the thing, whether she's faking it or not ultimately doesn't matter as far as Tony's concerned, because 
fuck you, you had tried to have me <laughs> right. killed, and you played mm-hmm. Junior like a fiddle. And, um, uh, yeah, and Tony is so worn out by this point, too. He's got that great line in that in that scene. Oh, yeah, these last 500 years just seem to fly by. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, this He therap- still blames himself mm-hmm. in that scene, which is, I think, in large part why he can't. As Jordan mentioned, when Melfi is reading this stuff from the DSM-4, Tony's interior monologue, I doubt, is something like, that's not true. Mm-hmm. His interior monologue is probably like, oh, shit. That kind of is true. And it's it's coming to full tilt, I think, what has happened here. Yeah, that's why he responds so and he so, can. so violently. Right. Uh, this scene killed me the first time I saw it because I love Dr. Melfi and just I have a great deal of affection and care for her as a character. And, you know, obviously, mob walks into a psychi- mob guy walks into a psychiatrist's office. Uh, you know, one of the big questions of many is, can she help him? Can she can she fix this whatever's broken here? And once Tony crosses this line, it really feels like, well, this is a significant life-changing moment for the course of their therapy at the very sure. least. So, you know, he, he physically attacks her, basically. He doesn't actually lay a hand on her, but in some ways it's worse. Yeah. Um, and, and their relationship is, is altered as a result of that. I don't know. We have to look at Dr. Melfi's role in this season as uh, the risk she is taking. And up until this point, she believes she has made a calculated risk. That she knows the man well enough to know that he's dangerous, but he's not a danger to me. Mm. And now she realizes in this pivotal scene that she's been wrong. That uh, had he gone just a little bit further, she'd be dead. Excellent deduction. And the again, the playfulness of The Sopranos, the irony of his becoming so physical. I, I think the first time I watched this episode, I thought he was going to do something to her that's how freaked yeah. out i was and still tense even in re-watching this scene the irony is she's trying to warn him yeah about he being in danger then he puts her in danger the irony later on is that she's scared to even let him in the office and he's there to warn her to get out of town oh yes wow that's something moving on through here um let's uh touch on some of the other threads we're going to come back to tony and livia in a little bit i i want to get some of these other uh let, let, let's talk about two characters here that make a big comeback in this episode. Let's talk about Artie Bucco. Let's talk about Father Phil. I fucking Schnora. <laughs> Monsignor Jughead was here. <laughs> um, You're sleeping over, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Artie has a new restaurant. This is plot news for us. Uh, the episode restaurant, of course, was the original Vesuvio was blown up by Tony in episode one to uh, avoid a hit taking place there yeah and uh he seems he and charmaine both seem very content uh with this new restaurant and that's that's going to come up in just a few minutes here in a pretty big way but Artie seems the happiest we've seen him since uh maybe the first couple of scenes in the in the series at the same time we're introduced again to father phil who is uh, wearing jackie's watch horrible and uh having lunch with roe and carmela of course he just happened to stroll in and catch them there and they you know did the whole well i guess i better go find my table knowing of course that they'd invite him to stay uh this is interesting and um i mentioned in college that i didn't want to get too into what father phil's deal is here because there's a great scene in the finale that addresses exactly what's going on with father phil and it's later on this episode when carmela finally just this episode, in all kinds of ways, is about the consequence of truth being unleashed in this world where everyone's lying most of the time. Truth comes out, and everyone's going to suffer for it. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
Carmela lays the truth on him. She so rarely in the show do characters get a chance to speak what's truly on their minds. Sure. And in many ways, this statement from Carmela is much more honest and forthright than her confession was back in college. Right. Well, we get we get three touches on Father Phil in this episode. We have the mm. scene at the new restaurant uh, where we see Rosalia Priol and Carmela with him. And we see that both of these women still have this kind of unnatural, let's call it, relationship with Father Phil. Really, the unnatural nature of it comes more from him. We can discuss that more in a moment. Um, the second time we see that Carmela is, is bringing food to him... Uh, at the church where he is already praying with with Rosalie April is that that's this episode correct yeah yes he is praying with her he's presiding over her perfect perfectly prepared macaroni or something yeah, yeah right yeah. there you go uh, and then the third time of course is the the actual confrontation that Carmela has with Father Phil that sort of resolves their entire relationship and she so accurately describes using her words what is going on with him that he has this weirdness where he feels he needs to manipulate women who are spiritually starved and that he gets off on the food, but also predominantly the sexual tension. And there's something very inappropriate by that. And I think Carmela feels uh, stained by this. She feels like this is dirty. Uh, and that's really something coming from Carmela, who cohabitates with Tony Soprano. It's stained, it's dirty, it's ashamed. But, and it's also, let's not discount this, it's also jealousy. Because oh, yes. she's, as gross and unnatural and filthy as it is, there might have been a part of Carmela who thought, well, okay... It's the priest who has some kind of weird, unrequited love for me. He's eating but, someone else's ziti. Right. Which is the way he expresses, as far as Carmilla and Father Phil are going, eating Rosalie's ziti, might, they might as well be fucking. It's like how, yeah. they, how they basically do everything but have sex on their date. Yeah. It's the same thing here. I think Carmilla is imagining Rosalie giving confession. And him slipping oh, yes. her a wafer by the fireplace. Uh, oh, Chris, perfect, 100%. I, I mean, also, uh, you know, for Father Phil, he's clearly having this relationship with probably more than even just the two of them. Yeah. I think this is his whole life, is just making himself at home in other people's houses, eating their food, and cozying up to their neglected wives. Uh, it's a really gross enterprise. He's also brought over this abhorrent movie, One True Thing, as a, <laughs> a, a, apparently I, I, a terrible film. I haven't... Uh, seen it myself. I did look it up. Uh, I think hilarious that the film is titled One True Thing, and that's exactly what he gets from Carmela when <laughs> he brings that movie over. Also, she's announced plainly she's not a Renee Zellweger fan. Hey, totally fair. But he is. So again, he's brought this movie over to serve his needs, not hers. This uh, yeah, this storyline is very fun. Yeah, I'm very impressed with Carmela, as we say, hitting on a lot of truth and also an uncharacteristic amount of self-awareness for a Sopranos character to note that I have been or still am a spiritually thirsty woman. Mm. And when she dispenses with Monsignor Jughead, when she <laughs> essentially throws him out or you know puts up the wall, that's also an ending to a storyline that began in the pilot, yes, with a different actor, but when Tony didn't like that the priest was coming over yeah, and that his attention is on the wife and maybe Tony in his own cynicism sees something that we should actually understand to be true of Father Phil. That ends this storyline. Mm. So I have to say, I'm in agreement with both of you about cheerleading for Carmela when she tells him off. When he walks out, I still feel uneasy, mm. I gotta tell you. Not because Father Phil doesn't deserve to be dispatched of in such a way, but because we're not gonna follow Father Phil anymore. I don't have any problem giving you guys that spoiler. This show isn't fucking about him. It's to a much greater degree about Artie and to an even greater degree about Carmela. And they're not making, they're not saying, I don't want any part of your shenanigans. They're making a deal with the devil they know. Mm. And that 
is what we're going to follow going forward. So I loved Carmela for telling him off. Carmela's still in it. And that's where we're going to go when this does pick up yeah. in another season. Well, and, it, you know, <clears throat> no mistake, of course, that our two soprano leads, Carmela and Tony, both, in a sense, lose their mentor here uh, in, in very cathartic and satisfying for different reasons, of course, but very satisfying scenes. In an episode full of satisfying conclusions, her telling off Father Phil is one of the most satisfying to me, even though it's it's not it maybe the, le- the, the least life and death of the various scenarios going on in this episode. Sure. Uh, and look at the philosophical victories that are won here, just in terms of, of Carmela's thought process and Tony's. Melfi is trying to get Tony to realize that his mother is his enemy, right? Uh, as Paul has brought up in the past, that was kind of the crux of David Chase's original pilot when he wanted to make a screenplay of this and do this as one movie. That's what the film is supposed to be about, about a therapist who convinces the gangster that his mother is his enemy. That is successful, and she is she is punished for it. Carmela does hear that Father Phil is saying that Tony is a sinful man, but her realization uh, isn't that the sinful man is the enemy, it's that the institution that condemned the sinful man is the enemy. She understands that Tony is who he is, and that is the bottom line. So actually, they, they both come to these important realizations, and both of these realizations end up in the, the mentor being punished for it. I think in Father Phil's case, correctly. Yeah. In Melfi's case, not so much. Mm. I love that one line she throws at him, uh, I get the same who me shit with Tony too. I don't need. <laughs> like, sure. Very good. Uh, okay, so getting back to it, a, a funny beat of this episode. <laughs> we see uh, some kind of restaurant worker coming out uh, from behind a bar, a restaurant tripping over Jimmy Altieri's body. Mm. He's got a rat stuffed in his mouth. Really, just gross, vivid imagery. Mm. And then we cut to a scene in the back of the Bing where there's a very quick. Very quick moment of dialogue that makes me laugh every time where they're talking about Jimmy Altieri's funerals to, uh, tomorrow or tonight or whatever. And uh, Chris says, yeah, I phoned in a bomb scare. And Sylvia's just like, see, that's over the top. <laughs> yeah. still, have to, still have to rein in the kids' excesses, right? Sure. And also this gallows humor is what we tune in for. It's what we've come to enjoy. Because the things these men do is ghastly, but the way they joke about it and have fun with it is beautiful. Yeah. And David Chase in particular has a very... A grim sense of humor at times. A lot of these, like the, the gallows humor, as as you very correctly identified, Jordan. Uh, it, it's very David. Ch- the episodes he writes are are full of the are full of that. Well, and the rat in Jimmy's mouth probably reference. Uh, Junior at the beginning said, "Make sure you send a message to everybody." Mm. So, uh, next big story beat here is Tony is brought to a clandestine basement of of some kind to be played a tape by the FBI agents. We have Agent Harris, who we've now seen several times in the season. Very clear that this guy has been assigned to take help take down the mob in North Jersey. And we meet a new character who uh, is... This is a first appearance, I believe, and not the last we're going to see of this person. Uh, Agent Frank Cubitoso. And he planted a bug in Green Grove and has something for Tony. He jokes, what, Springsteen box set? Uh, <laughs> but... Um, it's certainly not the boss, but uh, this scene confirms what he already knew and what Melfi had told him. But um, I love this scene because unlike therapy, he's not in a location 
where he can truly express how devastating this is. But you see it. It's a, they do a one beautiful shot with uh, uh, Agent Cubitoso's face in the background, and Tony's just listening, and his eyes just close for a second, and he swallows it. But you can see he's gutted by this. Thoughts on this scene, how Tony comes to terms with this? Can you fucking imagine being Tony listening to this tape, actually hearing your worst nightmares on audio? I mean, he's able to keep it together, but we read every expression that is in that closing of his eyes when he replays the tape for himself to continue. Like yeah, he wants like to Frank hear a stops little bit more, it and then he like, gets played. Yeah, he knows he has to hear it because it, it's like his soul cries out. It's like he he needs to hear this confirmed. This is the ultimate primal betrayal: the mother betraying the son. Who can get over this? No one. This is something that defines you as a person from this moment forward. Really. Mm. Yes, uh, and Cubitoso. It would seem, I guess in an effort, a larger effort to get Tony to flip on Junior or something, is starting to prime him for this revelation and kind of needles him a bit. We share these ideas, culinary, matriarchal. Camera cuts to Agent Harris. He doesn't like it. He's not, you know, he, he, he clearly is not a fan of this approach. It's too much, because even, even he seems troubled by it, as Jordan just pointed out, wouldn't anybody? Yeah. It's too much. It's unbelievable. It's the irredeemable. I mean, even Mikey Palmisi, one of the characters, one of the season's most despicable characters, admonishes Donnie in the previous episode. You think that's funny? A guy's own mother? You know what I mean? Yeah. This idea is so grotesque that even the most grotesque get how grotesque it is. Uh, so yeah, it's absolute. I, I can I'm, I sympathize with Agent Harris here, and also this does an interesting thing where that obviously look is Tony going to leave this room and realize oh poor Junior was played no but he does kind of get to understand what we as viewers have understood is that Junior's been played like a fiddle and you know this isn't my uncle as a mob boss hiring a hitman to kill me this has been orchestrated by forces higher than Junior and that force just happens to be his mother Mm. it's also an example it happens a few times in this episode with possible alliances being floated and information coming from unexpected sources. Mm. It's just one of many examples of Tony sitting down with the FBI of all groups of people, the one group of people that he can't show anything with, and they give him this devastating information. It's not the first time that it happened. Shortly after this, I think, is when Livia reveals to Artie. That's, I think it's the very next scene. Let's talk about that, because... Yet again, we have the situation where for an onlooker to perceive that this woman does not know what she's doing would require an incredible amount of benefit of the doubt. Good lord. First of all, the scene is very funny. Let's just get that out there. John Ventimiglia, this actor who plays Artie Bucco, is a total king. Uh, guy is an 8-inch schlong, as far as I'm concerned. Eight oh, and a half, eight 12. And a half, 12 inch, Take maybe 12. even 13. 13 inch schlong. One, one inch for each episode of the season. And... <laughs> <laughs> No, he's great, and he he crushes this scene. He's so funny. He's so charming. I want him to bring me this dish. Mm. Uh, Paul meant Paul uh, mentioned a little uh, the duck connection here. Oh, a duck ragu, a duck, yeah. ragu. duck ragu sauce. Yeah. Uh, yep, not an accident. Mm. Uh, Carmela later tells Tony that she's a peculiar duck. Uh, I think Artie says something like she's an odd bird. Mm-hmm. You know, all over, all over the place. The imagery of the ducks in the pilot is wistful and sad in some ways, but not menacing. Mm. There's something menacing, I think, in the castration dream. But, you know, you see ducks flying around, it's nice. This imagery is dark, it's weird, it's off-sides, like mm. she's, something's off about her. And Carmela, that's, this is not the last time that we'll hear this, there was always something about her. 
Yeah. So that kind of imagery bringing it up is interesting here. And uh, of course, in typical Livia fashion, some things never change. It's not quite as drastic, perhaps, as it would have been if Tony had done it, but he brings her something lovely and delicious, and she's all excited for a moment, and then he, <laughs> oh, northern, <laughs> which is so real. Yeah. That souring her mood seems to put her right into the place where she mentions the fire. Yeah. Yes. And if we're to take this scene that it is an act, uh, boy, what she is just an Academy Award winning actress. I mean, really, even just a friend of Tony, she has to come in with this and then immediately consider how can I hurt Tony even in this meager interaction? Yeah. Interesting, too. Uh, whether it's an act or not, actually, the same thing applies. Livia knows about the fire because of Tony and Junior, mm-hmm. because they were dumb enough to tell her yes. in the pilot. Right. That's the only reason it comes back around here. And what's it, another connection to the pilot that made me think that I thought of when we were dealing with Nuovo Vesuvio, the new Vesuvio, is that Tony said that the old days, the heyday is over and the best is gone. And also, Artie was devastated when the place blew up, the restaurant blew up in the pilot. Now the new Vesuvio is open and something, it seems like, new and vital has come into Artie. And it's so, so it's so heartbreaking to see how it fucks with him, even though when Livia says what she says, the cut to Artie's face is so funny. Yeah. Because of John Ventimiglia's face just dropping. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's also take into account that the the name Vesuvio is, of course, an allusion to, to Mount Vesuvius, uh, a volcano, a literal eruption that, that starts an era of something happening. Um, we can take that moment of the restaurant blowing up in the pilot as literally the explosion that kind of triggers everything else. And now kind of a new volcano has replaced it. It's not that the volcano erupted and the disaster is over. It's that something new and worse is coming. I think it is no accident that the new restaurant has a severe bug problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know that Charmaine does not want these mafia types coming in, even though, Artie, as Artie says, you know, that clientele does bring in a certain element, brings in a certain business. It's good to have these guys around. But, you know... He mentions to Carmela, hey, look, that, that bug in the salad, that was that was an accident. I buy from the most expensive produce dealer in the area. Uh, Charmaine mentions later about uh, that new exterminator might really work out. She kills a bug in the kitchen. Yeah. This place is infested. It's infested with bugs. It's taking on plague. It's literally the plague of these mobsters. We'll revisit that again when we talk about the last scene in this episode and what that image looks like. But this is a really ominous portent, uh, this yeah. new restaurant emerging. I think symbolically, we'd almost rather they work at the Olive Garden. <laughs> yes yes 100 percent. we're gonna come back to that in a second but we get a couple of scenes here tony uh what what i love about the two of these scenes after the after Artie finds out uh we get tony in the back of the bing basically confirming it was junior you know no mistakes we gotta nip this in the bud now the race is on right we gotta get junior before he comes back to me paulie says i'm junior i gotta finish what i started so it's a, we're we're now in a situation where and the he's tension very right correct, uh, so the tension's high and it's a literal race who's gonna kill the other first, and then he goes home and I, I I wrote Tony is is just he's a good mob boss he's good at this job he's qualified for this job he's good at doing it and then we get this lovely scene at home in Tony and Carmela's bedroom where he's vulnerable and he's sad and she's angry for him and supportive of him these two fight a lot they've had a real rough season between the revelation of the therapist and and you know tony's impotence with the 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 medication and the uh the therapy 
and I, I really love how much Carmela is in Tony's corner. It's a really sweet scene. And, and, you know, Tony's really, for a woman who wanted to fill Melfi's spot in Tony's life, Tony's able to really be honest with her here. And I really like that. It's a, it's a moving scene. Oh, yes. This, uh, um, these two scenes are interesting to me for a number of reasons. One is uh, what Tony doesn't tell the guys. Mm-hmm. He doesn't say anything about his mother. Polly says anything else. My ear hurts. Yep. Then there's, I think in, in episode four we discussed, Chris, you mentioned, what about the scene that's not in the episode? Yeah. There's a scene that's not in this episode. There's the scene where he goes home and tells Carmela everything. Mm. Yep. We instead cut to after he's told her that, and she is comforting him. She's got the arm around him. She brings him a pill, the only motherly comfort that he has. And this scene to me is the juice, because as you said, he's a good mob boss, and his failings as a mobster, that's not the key here. The, que- the key is his relationship with his mother. Yeah. And he says the following, among a few things, including our pull quote, what kind of person can I be that whose own mother wants him dead? He says, I'll deal with my Uncle Junior, and I'll deal with Mikey P, and I'll get some satisfaction, but inside, I'll know. That's the existential crisis, or among them, that defines The Sopranos. Breaking Bad never did an episode like that, never could. Better Call Saul never will do an episode like that. Never could, because that this is something that is specific, I think, to this show. Tony is saying, and we see some of it later on in this episode, that he's going to take out Mikey Palmisi, he's going to take out Junior, and he will get some satisfaction from doing murder and being solidified as boss. But inside, I'll know. My own mother. How could this even be? And that aspect, that fight within himself, will characterize 70 more episodes of this show. Hmm. So that's what I think we're dealing with, and that's why I think that's one of the more important scenes in this whole episode. No series, arguably. Yeah. Absolutely. I I wonder a couple things in that missing scene. I wonder how much of this Carmela was anticipating. Certainly not that. I think, honestly, she's being beautiful to him in this scene. I think yeah. she's a receptive, loving wife. There is no You're mixed messaging from her. She's totally on his side. Yeah. She's not asking him to consider it another way or trying to dismiss it in some way. She affirms this for him. She says... You've discovered this is true. You've had this breakthrough. I'm with you. I agree. And this is the side we'll be on. And, you know, for all the fighting they do, look, every... We're three guys here. Every guy would want a woman in their corner at their most vulnerable moment to say, God, I could kill the person who did this Absolutely. To you. Usually that woman's your mother before it's your wife. <laughs> right. Uh, which is just, just a, a terrible thing to step back and think about. Yeah. Um, this is a wound that I don't know that someone can heal from. Mm. You know, trying to put that in perspective with my own mother... I don't know if you ever don't get up in the morning and have that be your first thought, you know, before you get out of bed. Thing one, not I have to take a piss, not, uh, not uh, oh, the other side of the pil- pillow is colder. It's, uh, yeah, my mother wanted to kill me. The first thought, every day, forever, till you die. Brutal. That is depressing. <laughs> <laughs> so, let's begin, uh, well, I-, I would be, last note on that scene, I would be remiss if I didn't mention the amazing quote, cunnilingus and psychiatry brought us to this i mean uh you know i just (laughs) apparently chase thought that that line was too much really it was too on the nose but in his words i couldn't resist yeah well which is i I mean it's so funny it's it's a damn good line yeah (laughs) (laughs) it's i think it's something tony would say and it's very funny and it's dark and it's true uh, again, in an episode laden with truth in a show that is devoid of it very often. Yep. Tony is about to get his satisfaction. We get the first of uh, a long series. We're now entering the phase of uh, the mob story where all the enemies are vanquished. And um, this is a cool hit. 
Tony pulls a gun out of a fish's mouth, surprises Chucky Signori. I wrote, hi, I wrote, uh, much like Brendan Falone's last uh, words that he hears, it's basically like, hi, Chucky, bye, Chucky. We met Chucky uh, at the end of Nobody Knows Anything, and he's uh, he's gone. He one of Junior. That's one of Junior's guys down. Boom. You mentioned fish imagery also possibly representing death. In episode four, I think when he was sadly dying and drugged to the gills, Jackie said at one point, I got a fish in my pocket. Mm-hmm. In this sequence, yep. the fish is the pocket. Yep. So... Yep. There's also ducks. Well, and around. fish. I, I think fish might also be. Uh, I, I I looked into this. Fish might also be a mob slang for peace. A gun. That that might even be a thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is also only the second murder I think that we've seen Tony commit, and there's ducks around once again. Oh, on the water in the Meadowlands, the sure. gross, you know, uh, <laughs> the gross scenery of the Meadowlands underscoring the scene. Mm. And then we get this next Melfi Tony scene. Um, where he returns to her office and she runs and grabs the scissors. It's a shame. Obviously, this is one of those situations I feel for both characters. Tony has nowhere else to go. And he must warn her, obviously, because she needs to know she's in danger now. But, you know, I also totally understand why she would fucking run for the hills and immediately call 911. Sure. It's amazing how much, even in a dire moment, she still tries to uphold the... Uh doctor-patient relationship because mm. she ultimately does relent. She hangs up the phone. She has called 911, which is a totally reasonable reaction. And again, to reference another episode we recorded, I think 99 times out of 100, you let that thing ring until you get somebody on the phone and say, there's someone here to kill me. Yeah. But she doesn't. For some reason, she wants Tony in that office. She wants to have this conversation. The only thing that she relents to is she sits behind her desk yeah. instead of at the chair in their normal spot to kind of signify to us this is not the normal conversation that we're usually going to have, and we get a totally different camera angle as a reward, right? Yeah. Uh, he's he's not on his usual angle. He's not in the usual spot. She's not in her usual spot. There's something different about the scene. There's something in the amazing detail of this show. In the last sequence, which was only like 10 minutes in, how fast this, movie, this episode moves through plot, it was only nine minutes in that he raged at her and flipped over the glass portion of the coffee table and just destroyed it it's so funny that just briefly you get to see what melfi's temporary fix is which is this ugly brown footstool that the kleenex (laughs) are awkwardly sitting on top it's so funny you just see it for a minute but i just i said oh wow they had to think of that and find this ugly thing i love this her temporary fix for uh this issue and yeah, I mean, it is a very different scene. It's powerful. It's interesting. It brings up stuff for the situation is so tense that it it's, seems to bring up some of Melfi's soprano esque underbelly. Jesus fucking Christ! Right, she yeah, says yeah. at one point. And of course, the dream imagery with Jeannie Cusimano. Let's talk about that real quick before we get to the the meat of this scene, um, because this is what our title is. What's up with this title? Jordan and I had a brief conversation. Paul was uh, either using the restroom or having a break outside. But um, is this David Chase just being cute? (laughs) I Dream of Jeannie Cusimano is not a title I can conceive of at all. As like a double... Well, a lot of the titles have double meaning. Boca being both the place junior... I'm really missing missing this one. And the Italian word for mouth. Is there a deeper meaning to this or is it just David David Chase being a little cute? There's something playful and funny about it, for yeah. sure. Oh, yeah. The only connection that I made, other than Jeannie Cusimano and the curiosity that Melfi sets out, Jeannie is actually quite slender. Why does Tony perceive this big ass as at the feelings of worthlessness brought on by his mother's plot to have him killed? I Dream of Jeannie is a sitcom from Tony's youth, from mm-hmm. the heyday of the gangster, and the Jeannie character in it, um, the wife, the maternal figure, is a trickster. 
like Tony's mom. However, the trickster in that show did tricksterism and plied her trade for one purpose and one purpose only, to please her husband. I wondered if that is what Tony's dream is. That these women, if they, if they utilize these tricks, they will only do it in the service of me. Mm. But that's not what his mother did. That's not what his mother does. She serves her own purposes. So that's what I thought of when I thought of the title. I never watched I Dream of Genie, so I can't speak to any of its detail. Yeah. But that was what came up for me. Yeah, I, I can't really parse out the meaning of the title. I think Paul has probably the best reading on that. So actually, I, I think I will just go with Paul's yeah, go reading because I don't really have much of my own. Uh, the only thing I'll say is I also think of, of course, the song, I Dream of Jeannie with the Light Brown Hair, which, of course, that sitcom's title was, was based on. But looking at the lyrics of that song, they're, they're very vapid. They're just like a sort of an ordinary love song about mm. being in love with a girl that has brown hair and walking through you know your life with her as if it were a dream which i guess kind of goes back to our overall themes of sleep and wakefulness and mm. a fantasy so i guess really to paul's point this really just enriches what paul already said i guess i dream of genie kusumano is i dream of this fantasy woman that does not exist right i dream of the woman who can be everything for me finally the woman who is smart and academic and speaks to these higher pursuits that I secretly have. A woman that can also sexually satisfy me because she's got a big ass pressed up against me when I'm fucking her doggy style. But also can be a mother to me, all kind of wrapped up in one. Uh, maybe that is the title. Maybe we're reading too much into it. Maybe Chris's reading here is more correct where it's just David, Case, uh, David Chase being cute. The least significant thing in the episode of, of great significance is what the title is. Yep. Either way, I, I I like I like what I like well, I liked this conversation we had about it, so I'll I'll put a pin in that and leave it. But yeah, let's talk about this. Melfi's in danger. Uh, I love the, her delivery of this line. I can't just do that. Lam it, you know. I have a lot of life. I have patience. <laughs> She's so funny. She's great. She's really terrific, and they really sizzle in this scene. These two have such great chemistry. They do. I was actually a little taken aback that she had not considered that uh, Tony's so-called Midas touch of turning everything into shit would eventually come for her, too. Mm -hmm. I really can't believe that she thought she was so protected in this. Pretty much everyone in her life, from her husband, or her estranged husband, to her her doctor, to her son, to really ev everyone, even including Tony himself, has basically told her, this is a dangerous and unusual situation that you're in. You need to protect yourself a little better. She has never done that. Uh, at no point from when he stole her car or anything else did she think, maybe I'm in too deep. Mm. You play in the dirt, you get dirty another great show yeah it, it's it's rough because and i feel for melfi here because you know i think part of it is her trying to be a really good doctor to him part of it is some kind of sympathy or attraction and then part of it is she's she's flirting with the dangerous she's on a carnival ride here and it spun out of hand very quickly and that moment when she realizes just how in depth she is when Tony flat out says, you're thinking you're going to go to the cops, but they, they're they not going to help you because you can't give them anything. And she she takes off her glasses, resigned, and, and Tony's like, I'll deal with the people that pose a threat to you. And she realizes, my God, people are going to get murdered, aren't they? Don't worry about those distractions, is mm -hmm. what he says. That's Tony loves that word, distractions. He said it to Chris in the pilot. Um, mm -hmm. Those aren't, they're not untruths. They're just things that it does not serve my purpose for you to focus on. Yeah, I mean, let, let's look at Melfi as if she were the protagonist here for a second. We, we've spoken a lot on our show about, you know, why have him as a patient? Why not dismiss him as soon as you find out some of these details that, that might be threatening to you? And we have posited before that it's because there is something thrilling about having this man as a patient to her, something that excites her. It could be possibly just 
purely academically exciting. It could be sexually exciting. Let's remember our last episode, you know, Isabella. Uh, Isabella is the woman that has everything that Tony is missing. You know, that's his mother. That's the authentic Italian uh, woman. Tony has a lot of what Melfi is missing. She has kind of resigned over her blue-collar background. She has resigned over the really authentic uh, Italian uh, part of herself. Tony has a lot of those things that she's missing. The kind of men she dates are these weak-willed academics, don't really have much masculinity and machismo, bravado to them. Tony has that. I think she's attracted to all of these things. So even in this scene where she calls 911, and in my opinion, she should stay on that fucking line until she goes away, mm. she doesn't because there is something there. I'm not ready to use the word love yet, but it's approaching it. Mm. Food for thought. Food for future discussion. That's very good. I agree. Well said, guys. Um, pussy, booty. I don't know his last name. When she says, I have patients that are suicidal, and he says, well, they're not going to feel any better about their life if you get clipped. <laughs> Very funny. Yeah. And uh, I like his last line to her. You've been a good doctor to me. Thank you. And it could end there. It could end there. It really could. Like, I, yeah. I, I wrote that as my next note is like, in you know, unfortunately, there's six, not unfortunately, but un- unfortunately for this assumption, there are there are five, six more seasons of this show. But this could, as far as Tony's concerned, be the last time he ever sees her. And in the context of this season, just this season only, this therapy has been a success. Mm-hmm. Think about this, really. Mm. At the beginning of the season, he's a depressed, anxious person, having panic attacks, unable to see the truth that's right in front of his face about his own relationships and how it relates to how he interacts with everyone in his daily life. By the end of this season, he's not having a panic attack anymore, okay? Mm -hmm. He is appropriately medicated. There's nothing that's too high, too low. He's off the lithium. He's not, you know, hallucinating. He's fine. Um, He's realized the truth about his mother. And I think, and I totally believe this, Tony is a more complete, better, and ultimately happier person for having had this therapy. When he says, you've been a good doctor to me, I think he totally means that. That's very fascinating, Jordan. I really like that thought that, like, you know, for taking season one as its own thing and it never caught on culturally and it never became the big sensation it was and it never got renewed for a second season, for all intents and purposes, you'd have to say this was a raging success. Right. You, on... you would still show this season to other people and yeah. you would say, well, it's too strange for the general populace, but great season of TV. It does have a definitive ending. Go ahead and watch it. Yeah. Very good. We get into this amazing arty scene from here. The tension's been building. Each scene is life and death. Junior's guys are dropping. Melfi's on the lam. Things are unraveling. The consequences of their actions and their lies are all coming down on everybody. And then we get this scene outside Satriales between Artie and Tony. I love this scene. I am biased. I love the character of Artie Bucco. But damn, what a... <laughs> he shows up with this rifle and... This, that restaurant was like my child. You feel Artie's pain here. You know, he's screaming at him. And I love that Tony's initial defense is, am I that fucking stupid? Because he is. <laughs> Not that this is necessarily a stupid thing to do. I guess it is. Maybe a short-sighted solution. But man, oh man, what do we what do we make of this Buko Tony scene here? Competes for the best scene of the episode. Yeah. Um, it's really great. It hits you from the side because even after... Artie has had that conversation with Livia. I don't think as the viewer you think it's going to resolve this way. No. You think, sure, they'll have an argument. Maybe this is a little pearl that they'll keep for the second season. 
I don't think you imagine that uh, Artie's going to show up in the parking lot ready to kill Tony with the rifle. And by the way, I know that there's been a lot of debate back and forth as to whether or not Artie has the cojones to shoot Tony. I think he does. 100%. I think Tony is a hair away from dying in this scene. Tony saves his own life here. I have no doubt. I have no doubt. He saves his own life by lying expertly. Um, right. I, think... oh, I swear on my mother. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> my mother is going senile, Artie. And uh, it's it is unexpected. It's certainly the the it, it now John Patterson directed this episode. Yeah, not surprising. It's perfectly done. Tony gets out of the car. Hey Artie, how's your rash? Whip pan over to Artie pulling out a hunting rifle. As Jordan <laughs> said, last thing on earth I'd expect to see. I agree with Jordan. That gun is that gun is pointed at Tony's face, and Artie is. He's he's apoplectic. Oh yeah, obviously yeah. he now, can barely hold the, himself together. The, the the ten minutes after shooting Tony might be him turning the gun on himself in the car. Sure, but I absolutely sure. believe he would do it. And oh, yeah. this is also something very specific about these characters. Tony lies so expertly, but also who else could do this and ever walk well, away? That was my next question. Is there any other character in the Sopranos universe who could pull a gun on this guy and not only walk away but? Like, they're cool. <laughs> so, no. No, definitely not. It's only Artie. It's Artie Tony's Tony. more worried by yeah. the end of the scene that Artie is going to crash the car and hurt himself. Sure. Yeah. Well, look, he smashes the rifle. Artie smashes the rifle on his own station wagon, okay? Basically that uh, his soul feels like it's being ripped into in that scene. Like, he couldn't do this thing, and now he's going to take it out on himself. He's smashing the rifle against the car. Maybe Tony thinks he's even going to run out that station wagon and drive into a fucking embankment or something mm -hmm. like that at that point. I think, you know, Tony feels bad in yeah. this scene and, and that's important uh he feels bad in a way that um he he can realize how he's hurt others tony and Artie have a very unique and special relationship and i think that's solidified in this episode uh, intensely they played little league together this is uh this is not one of tony's goons this is somebody that tony does have a legit soft spot for though it's also the other thing that threatens this relationship is uh father phil yeah, and I wrote down this note that it's so fascinating in this world of gangsterism. The two plausibly most dangerous characters in this finale are a douchebag priest and a gangster's <laughs> batty old mother. But again, Artie makes the choice. He, I think, he makes a decision that is important and it's going to stay with us and it has its consequences, mm. including as we mentioned earlier, Charmaine doesn't want the new place to be a mob hangout. I guess kind of like the old one was. I mean, presumably she's lost that argument or given up on it at the end. Yeah. The whole crew is there. Yeah. Well, Artie goes right into church to talk to Father Phil. We mentioned that uh, these two characters get together here. I had an interesting read on this scene. I want your guys' thoughts on this. Uh, watching this, and I'm looking at it, and I'm thinking about alternate motivations and how a big plot this season was Livia very subtly manipulating Junior to achieve his ends. Is this read potentially correct here? Is Father Phil using Catholicism, <laughs> the morality of the church and, and Christian faith, to propel Artie to report the arson to the authorities to get Tony out of the way to clear him with Carmela? Is that at all possible? Is he that underhanded? Is that, or is that in his brain at all on any level? I don't think his plans were that grand. I don't think he sees himself replacing Tony and Carmela's life. Not replacing life. Tony and Carmela's life, but simply like, you know, by creating a, a legal catastrophe in the Soprano household, it, it, it deepens the spiritual thirst uh, from Carmela. I wondered about it, but the, I, I just came to a slightly different conclusion, hmm. which is that 
Father Phil, I think, is perhaps also spiritually thirsty in some ways. We do know that he takes these underhanded roads, but I think he wants to feel powerful and effective in his role. Mm. And it's actually after the second scene, I believe, with Artie that he goes to speak to Carmela, and again, his position is even further diminished. Yeah. You don't even get the comfort of hanging out with Carmela to have some semblance of a feeling of power. Mm. So I thought it was inter- and it was interesting that both characters in undermining Father Phil, both Artie and Carmela, solidify Tony's position. Solidify Tony's position as a friend to Artie, solidify Tony's position as a partner to Carmela, from which she doesn't need any spiritual advisor. Mm. Continuing on this murderer's row of great (laughs) all-time scenes, we have this scene in the back of Satriales where Tony finally comes clean to the guys about therapy. This scene is so good. It's so good. good. It's a long overdue scene, and it only feels good. Uh, it feels like something he should have told them a long time ago, but also I'm so proud of Tony that he's come to this moment. I like that he acknowledges the exact time period. He says, this is how long I've basically been keeping up this lie or keeping this information from you. I like that he invites them to say things to his face, you know, say it to my, say it to my face, you know, say it to me to the front. I think they could get away with saying anything to him in that moment because he just wants to to hear it. He's basically abdicating his authority to them in that moment and saying, hey, judge me for this thing and let's talk about it. It's that thing that any boss does once in a while where he just like opens the floor and it's like, anything goes here. This right. is it, though. Yeah. Ask now because we're not going to discuss this again. He gets paid in an interesting fashion from each of the men. Uh, Silvio, of course, kind of just the, the, the loyal friend the loyal Mm. capo the loyal worker i guess we could say in this scene kind of generalizes he says you know uh it should be okay for us to talk about these things in this in these times of pain difficulty stress whatever paulie admits to having seen a therapist himself which i think is a huge thing and if it wasn't going to be okay before it's okay now because how can he make judgment on tony when he himself has seen a therapist albeit a male therapist and, um, and what an interesting twist here uh, to, to kind of button the scene where Tony or anybody might watch this thinking, well, surely the old the old timers are going to have a problem with this. But his nephew, Chris, Chris is who's the one much younger yeah. and Chris and Tony have had in-depth conversations about depression. Yeah. And of all of the people in this room, Chris kind of short circuits and just storms out. Sure. It's unexpected. But then like on further thinking about it. It's actually, it makes sense because Chris is more similar to Tony emotionally than Silvio or Polly. Uh, They're more similar characters, and we'll see a lot more of that going forward. But even up to this point, Chris has tasted a little bit of what it's like to be Tony, what it's like to be depressed, what it's like to be afraid. And he does not like that T has put himself in this position where he has to kind of lower himself before them and say, hey, this is what's happening. What do you think? It's, it's too soft a moment for chris chris doesn't like soft he's not ready for soft that's a good that's a very good reading and i agree with the overall reading of the scene as being positive because and i felt this during the rewatch even when chris walked out i still had this sense it's gonna be okay yeah for sure they're with him Mm. well he says at the beginning of the scene juniors decided to use it against me these guys are solidly with tony yeah so that's how i felt about the scene in the overall and again i even paulie's kvetching at vesuvio later on is brought back to center by Silvio's brand of loyalty. Yeah. I want to give Silvio a pat on the back, too, because um, when he responds to Tony at first, he says that he speaks for Pussy as well, even though Pussy's not there. And I thought that was a nice inclusion because they're not ready to condemn him for that yet, 
but Silvio feels confident that it's something that Tony should hear. And I think mm-hmm. Sylvia also feels confident that's something the pussy would say. Mm. So I, I appreciated that inclusion. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good scene. Um, also, I just, I love Sylvia. <laughs> it's time to get to Mikey Palmisi. But quickly, I do want to admonish Carmela. We did talk at length about the Carmela Rosalie, Father Phil storyline in this episode. So I only want to touch down on this briefly. But uh, I think all three of us can express our mutual disgust at Carmela. I have to admonish her here for dumping that delicious... You know, what was it? Like oh, my penne? God. It looked like penne with yeah. some kind of creamy oh, vodka yeah. That's sauce. the worst hit in this episode. <laughs> is the Just ziti. dumping that right in the garbage. Oh, my God. Give it to a homeless guy. Sure. Or, or even better, drive it over to... to penne to, to vodka? I, over here. Over here. Please bring it right here. We'll oh, have it while man. we while we talk about this episode. What a How fucking good waste. did that look? Oh, it looked so good. Fucking... F- I, I'll, I'll, you know what? I'll, I'll let Carmel off the hook. I'm going to blame Father Phil on that one. <laughs> um, uh, so, yeah, we, we continue on here and... Um, it's Kill Mikey Palmisi Day. We get this very brief scene of Tony at home, and he looks like he just woke up from getting laid. He's, like, thrilled. He's he's smiling, eating food right out of the fridge. He's, he's chipper. And uh, we get this fucking hilarious scene. I would watch a Mikey JoJo yeah. spinoff, at least for, like, a, <laughs> like a five-episode miniseries, <laughs> half-hour sitcom format, of course, of Mikey and JoJo. Uh, he's leaving. She's in a bathrobe. Her hair's up in curlers. And, you know, the last thing he says to her is, oh, go take a mitle. And she flips him <laughs> off. They're, they hate each other. And uh, we commented on this too, Paul, as he starts jogging, the dog. I mean, even the dog hates this fucking guy. <laughs> and then we get this insane sequence where uh, Chris and Paulie chase him into the woods. And uh, Chris has come full circle. He's a hardened killer now. He's eager to kill this guy. He chases him down. I want to take the imagery of Chris and Paul in the woods together and put a little button on that for later but this is great and so satisfying because we talked about early on how much of a weaselly shit this character is and what a way for him to go he goes out sunny corleone style just riddled with bullets here this is an unusual hit in a bunch of ways it's a little Um, messy it's messy um it starts in an interesting place he's Mm. he's jogging of course and he's followed by their car which he does not initially recognize because he doesn't run right away. He sees the car and he thinks, okay, a car is slowing down behind me. Mm. And he looks two, three, four, five times before he realizes, oh no, um, what's about to happen. He runs into the woods and he's athletic. If they had sent Silvio and Polly, Mikey Pomisi would still be alive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they sent Christopher, who's more than able to keep up as they run through the woods. Polly is marked by this hit. Um, he runs through a patch of poison ivy, which he gets it bad. Yeah. Uh, and as we see as Vesuvio later, he's he's treating it hilariously with the, the oatmeal smear all over his fucking body. Chris shoots him in a way that he is maimed, and he does this on purpose. And he waits for Paulie to catch up because he wants to have this moment. Chris has been having a hard time killing people this season. He has not been able to morally accept that it's okay to do this yet. As Pussy told him earlier, it is Pussy, right? Each one you do, it'll get a little bit easier, Pussy right? tells him that in, yeah. in uh, Legend of Tennessee Moltisanti. And I think we finally see that. That not only is this one easier for him, but um, Chris feels righteous in this moment. This is the guy that killed Brendan. Yeah. He wants revenge for that. You know, you, you shot my friend naked in a bathtub. Mm. Um, Chris, Chris gets a sense of vengeance here. Yeah. It's good. It's good stuff. Mikey goes out screaming and begging. I mean, it, it, you it's can't, an ugly death, too. You can't yeah. ask for a more ugly, pathetic way for a, a guy you hate to go out. Yeah. And it's again, also, another water death, by the way. Yeah. Oh, that's it's true. both other deaths that I think are planned or at least thought of in this episode are thwarted by circumstance. Mm. So this ends up being the most climactic murder that we get to see. Mm-hmm. 
This is also like a, a great death for the audience because we all hate Mikey. No one watches this show and, and thinks, oh, Mikey Pomisi, what a great character. Yeah. Well, they do, but they think, what a great character to hate. Yes. They love to hate him. Yes. Uh, you know, I still love rewatching the moment where he gets his suit stapled to him. Oh, yeah. You know, Al Sa <laughs> all credit to Al Sapienza. He did a great oh, job. Oh, great with this actor. Role. Yeah, for, but... for you know, it's one season of a six-season show, so I think he may get overlooked in the larger conversation. But this character is a fantastic villain. He's a great. He, he did a great job as Junior's heavy, highly obnoxious, highly unlikable. Uh, made the most. He did what I like to say, refer to as he maximized his minutes. Any minute he was on screen, he made it count. Great job, Dal Sapienza. Gonna miss this character, but he had to go. It was time. Oh, yeah. I will not miss the character, but good job to the actor. <laughs> um, we uh, progress here, and what, what we talked about this a little bit before we recorded. Chucky's gone. Mikey's gone. It's really a matter of time before Junior either catches wind or they kill Junior. So you have to believe that Tony's smart enough to know you got to get him all quickly. And uh, saved by the Justice Department. Uh, Junior, of course, is not happy about being arrested, but you have to imagine there's a certain, you know, saved by the government here. We get this little sequence where the FBI starts uh, dropping these indictments. Larry Boy Barisi, one of our captains, is getting arrested. And uh, Junior, I love the little moment out the window. Fuck, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's very good. And then we see the family watching this on the news. I love... Uh, I love that uh, they bring up Mikey Palmisi. You know, he's gone missing. Maybe he tried to escape, and Tony says, oh, lucky him. <laughs> <laughs> Very funny. Uh, the reaction of JoJo, oh, of Mikey's God. wife, on the uh, who, who completely gives the wrong impression. He, he told me he loved me and that uh, he'll, he'll be right back, right? I think is what she <laughs> yep. says. She was just so forlorn. And, the Soprano and... family in that sequence has also come to a kind of center. Yeah. Even the kids, Meadow is cynical. Come on, Dad, don't be... Don't, don't give me that. Look crap. at Uncle June doing the perp walk, an innocent yeah. businessman. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and when AJ says, oh, he's doing the perp walk, cool, he just gets a little. Yeah. So everybody comes back. Like, Cut the crap, Dad. Yeah, I yeah. mean, you know, and, and, then, and then the real conversation happens go eat somewhere else, Carmela makes coffee, and the two strategists sit down and talk it out. Mm -hmm. And what Tony says in that scene is that all this stuff, the Diamante stock option, all that stuff, he wasn't in on that. What he has to worry about is the guys who got pinched today. Yeah. If they flip. And the one that we see offered is Junior. Mm. This scene also caps the thread that we've been following throughout the first season of the kids coming into the realization that they're a mob family. This reminds me of the later film The Incredibles, where the whole family, yeah. uh, the whole the whole you know movie, we're not superheroes, we're not superheroes, we're not superheroes. Finally, the, the big caper happens, and at the end, it's just like, all right, yeah, put on the masks, we're yeah. all superheroes. <laughs> Tony's Tony makes no effort, neither does Carmela really, to be like, guys, we're not in the mob, cut his, that out. They're like, all right, fine, shut up. His projection here, yeah, he slaps AJ, and he does the legitimate businessman shtick to Meadow, but that's a paper moon at this point. Oh, they yeah. Know. No effort is put in. And, and the, you know, like, line. he knows. At this point, it's just like, you know, when the, when the chips are down in a crisis, like, obviously this mob thing is still something the kids... Uh, aren't going to talk about openly, you know, with regularity. But in a crisis situation, yeah, I mean, yeah, their teams, they're 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 rooting for their dad now. Yep. It's like juniors in jail. Cool, good. <laughs> you know? um, we continue here, and we get this great scene with Junior and this uh, district attorney or U.S. attorney, and uh, offers him full immunity. And this is peak Junior. This is Junior Soprano right here. I think we mentioned it's part Omerta. It's part. Just his old school mentality, but it's also his fucking ego. He will never... See, if they were able to get him, Angie Dickinson, 
he still wouldn't admit that, <laughs> that, that Tony was running the family behind his back. This is pure soprano, junior Corrado soprano ego here. Yeah. He, he cannot say it. Yeah, his ego's in the way of making any kind of deal. Junior's totally unafraid in this scene. If he um, were the villain of this season, perhaps he'd be more cunning in this sequence. He's not, and he isn't. Yeah. yeah. He, you know, he accepts whatever fate awaits him. He's not going out and having it on the record that he wasn't really the boss. If he's going down, he's going down as the boss. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, and look, Junior's a character, he's done time. I mean, whatever. Yeah. If he's going away forever, so be it. But if he's going away, he's going away for being the boss, not for being a fucking puppet. I want to mention a good bit of sound design here. Um, there's a line that hangs in the air. There's a pause uh, when uh, the, the attorney says to him, you're 70 years old, how many years do you have left? And then before Junior replies, you can hear in the background a, a, a cell door slamming shut. It's like... Mm. The door to something else is closing. Junior's made his decision, and he's here, mm-hmm. and he's you know this is this is he, he's standing up. That's not that Strunz, not in this life. I think this follows up on a decision that Junior made in Boca. I mean, look, mm. uh, this last episode, this finale, last pays for all. That's really really true in this season mm-hmm. of television, and I think Junior decided in Boca that the fantasy of, you know, moving away with his girlfriend and having his own little life. Uh, when he decided to be the boss of this family and to continue to be the boss of the family, even when he realized he wasn't really the boss of the family, he knows what he's getting into. And I think, you know, he's not stupid. He imagines that one of two outcomes, one of three outcomes, really, is that he will end up in jail, he will end up dead, or the very small percentage chance is that he will be a boss in a time of peace and will die peacefully. But these men don't expect to die peacefully. These men who enter into this business understand that there's a high percentage chance that they will be incarcerated or dead at an early age. And, and Junior's made that deal a long, long time ago. He's very and at peace with it. That same calculus will inform many stories moving forward. Sure, and, you know, uh, Vin McKazian said it and nobody knows anything. Who are the Fed's favorite targets as far as people flipping? It's guys who love their families. Who does Junior have? He's not married. Oh, nobody. He has no kids. His uh, substitute for a son in Tony, there's been a total yeah, he's, severance. He's flipped the two relationships that mean anything to him, yeah. his girlfriend and his nephew. He'll, really, die, he'll die in jail. He does not give a no, shit. No, yeah, he doesn't. It's an odd mentality because I totally would give a shit, but that's... <laughs> well, that's all Junior has left yeah. is his principles. Yeah. You can't take them from him. Yep. Not a man like him. Uh, a storm is coming over North Jersey. Uh, again, a, a nice... Again, I know we talked about this scene at length earlier, but when Father Phil comes to see Carmela, I love that it's yet again he shows up with a movie on the eve of another big storm. <laughs> yeah. You know, not an accident. He's hoping to cuddle again. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, I love that moment after she chews him out and he's just gobsmacked. I like that he almost gets to the door, turns around, takes the movie, and then he's like he had to go back for the movie because he's going to go to some other wives' house and, and watch that. <laughs> That's certainly the impression I got. Yeah. He'll spend the night with Rosalie. <laughs> yeah. Or someone. And here we are. This is, if there's a climax in a denouement this episode, here we are. Tony is going to Green Grove. It's thundering outside. It's lightning. It's dark. It's grim. This is right out of the last chapter of a novel, I feel like. Um, He is going to fluff up a pillow. Guys, this is dark stuff. And then um, in typical Sopranos fashion, we think we're going to get one solution. And they kind of swerve us and deprive us of that pleasure. But offer something much more rich and interesting in return. We find out from the woman at Green Grove that Livia's had some kind of a stroke and is being wheeled off to the emergency room. Yeah, so this card, uh, this turn in the script is what I think actually turns the episode into a masterpiece. 
that the final confrontation with the villain is deconstructed before the confrontation actually happens. Tony grabs a pillow. We think, perhaps this scene will end with him smothering his mother, and where will we go from there? Because that, too, is irredeemable. Yeah. But we learn from essentially an unimportant character, an assistant, that she's had a stroke. This is new important information for us, but Tony is so wrapped up in his revelation that he can't even process this real thing that has happened. Yeah. Uh, oh, and that smile on his face when he finds out that she's oh, had a stroke. It's, it's completely, completely wicked. Yeah. Uh, and their confrontation happens in a way that she is incapacitated and worse, protected by others. So he cannot even have the catharsis that would come from this confrontation. He needs to be healed in some way, whether he's going to smother her, whether he's going to get her to admit to it. Certainly he can't be dreaming of an apology, but maybe he's here for even that. He will get none of these things. You get the storm, you get the lightning, you get the atmosphere, and even so they can't res- they can't not put in something funny. Like there's butterflies in my stomach watching this. My stomach was clenching. And yet I had to laugh. George Clooney, don't get in the fucking middle of this. <laughs> but man, this is just, this is dark stuff. He's he's just, he leans down and, and gets real menacing and just uh, just spews this poison at Livia. Because it's the next best thing. As opposed to what Jordan mentioned, what, what, what might have been the other irredeemable solution. I don't have any better reading than that. I think it's the, I think it's that you are deprived of this ultimate showdown. And instead it's the question of, how will Tony live with it, and how will he process it? Yeah. And that will be a, another set of questions that we, if not answer, we grapple with. Sure. As we go on. Well, uh, and it is most assuredly a conclusion, but there's a shot after Tony leaves the hospital of him just looking kind of sad and lost, driving through the Meadowlands in the midst of this storm. The storm for Tony, even though the season is ending and it's wrapped up in a satisfying way, the question of how Tony navigates the storm ahead with this knowledge is the crux of the character for the next 70 episodes or so, as you said earlier, Paul. And, you know, I just, the image of him kind of lost, sad, driving through that storm, not knowing the the road is blocked, you know. Uh, A colleague of mine who I very much admire once said of acting and of writing, the more specific you get the more general something becomes, thereby the audience can relate to it. The specificity in which this scene is played, it's a very unusual circumstance. It's a storm. They're at a nursing home. She's had a stroke. There's this completely complicated relationship between them. Tony needs a resolution. He needs uh, some end to this, this misery, this revelation that he's had. It's so peculiar, and he doesn't get it. He doesn't get her to say sorry. He doesn't get to kill her. He doesn't get anything. And that specificity becomes so general for us as viewers because there are things that we go through our whole lives wanting for people to have said to us, the apology that you never get, the I love you you never get to hear. And you have to go through your life trying to work with this chip on your shoulder, this boulder that might break your back, but you don't get it. Life doesn't have these amazing confrontations. It's not a movie. You know, you don't get mm-hmm. to sit down with your enemy and have them apologize or rationalize for you all the reasons why they did what you did, even if that enemy is your parent or your mother. And the episode is much stronger for not definitively resolving this. Put a pin in that for mm-hmm. this show as a whole. Absolutely. The, I think another thing about that scene is that it informs something about how Livia, like, I don't know, maybe certain current U.S. presidents is not just bad in and of herself, she makes everybody else worse. Mm. Because the circumstances are such that Tony, in this position where he can't get anything else, becomes Livia-esque in his confrontation with her. All he can do is sneer and and 
uh, shout this poison in her face, I'm going to live a long, happy life, which is more than I can say for you. Mm-hmm. So that's all that's left. It's kind of, perhaps referencing the rot that we discussed in the last episode. It's that kind of point that we've come to. And here we are. Uh, this is the end. Uh, this uh, We get the shot of the Soprano family in the car. This storm is raging. It's wicked. There's a street that, you know, we find out later there's a tree blocking the street they need to go. They're never going to make it to Aunt Patty's. AJ has a wise-ass line when Tony said that. That made me laugh. You know, uh, well, why do we get a fucking off-road vehicle? And AJ replies, to waste petrochemical resources. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Tony gives him a glance. That's really funny. <laughs> it's yeah. like the smartest thing AJ has ever said. And, um... They go to uh, Vesuvio, and uh, we kind of get, this is the wrap-up. This is where everybody's at. Chris and Aid are back together after their fight and a hit is a hit. It suggests the nature of their relationship. We don't get to see their makeup scene, but it suggests that these two probably fight and break up and get back together quickly. It probably happens three, four times a year. You know, we see Paulie, and and we get this very interesting scene between Paulie and Silvio where they're talking like, you know, uh... There might be lingering feelings about this therapy thing, but Silvio puts, uh, you know, kind of ends that and says, hey, he's the boss. Wish him bona fortuna. I love that scene. I love that little moment with those two guys. No pussy. Artie invites them in, cooks by candlelight, and we get this touching little scene at the table. Any thoughts on this last sequence here and what this portends, what this says, what this did for you? So much. The scene's very rich. Um, I will say that the look of it all feels very ethereal to me yeah. uh, almost like a kind of an afterlife or uh, e- even though it's a wholesome uh, darkness there is this kind of purgatorial sense to it that um, this is like this almost supernatural or spiritual stopping point in the show that the action of the show has coalesced and now paused here the storm is outside we're here in the dark but we're here together you know, as you said, this is like the tie-up for all these points. Very funny that Charmaine has been trying to keep the mob element out, yet in the darkest moment here, that's all that's in this restaurant. Yeah. Tony and his family, <laughs> Silvio and Polly at one table. Adriana, who she's over the moon about, is actually Christopher's girlfriend, which I'm yeah. sure the missing scene here, she learns to her chagrin that that <laughs> is, you know, Christopher's uh, basically betrothed. Uh, there's no escape point, <laughs> right there's no escape uh, so the new Vesuvio is basically hey meet the new boss same as the old boss this is <laughs> this is you know the ground of the new empire and, and there's nothing to say about that except no cigars please uh, right uh, <laughs> right but pretty much what I want to bring up there is if we remember you know Tony's first panic attack from the pilot he's trying to get Carmela to remember the good times mm-hmm. uh, you know he he has this uh, this focus on that 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 we must remember these small moments that were good and that is his toast here in the restaurant as he is in a transition point, as he is putting a cap on something, that what's most important to Tony here as they take shelter from the storm, as they eat this food together, as they're in this kind of stopping, protected bubble, uh, that they they remember the good times as a family. Yes, it brought a lot up for me. There's a lot of imagery that feels warm in that regard. There's some that feels ominous. Uh, Stevie Van Zandt, who was part of the E Street Band, says Tony's going to be the boss now in name and everything else, and then the boss <laughs> plays us out yeah. this great tune that is per- that's not a super happy one. No. Mr. State Trooper has a dour kind of feeling, um, and of course the storm. The is first re- words of the song are New Jersey Turnpike. Of course it's dour, <laughs> <laughs> and, the, and riding on a wet night, yeah. which is what this is. Yeah. And the storm is outside, but there's the focus on the good times and trying to remember those times even if they're few and far between, as Jordan referenced. And something else from the pilot that came up for me was when Tony brought Meadow to the church and 
talked about their legacy of guys building and try to find guys today who can put decent grout in your bathtub or something like that. But the storm is outside and the structure is holding them together and they're good inside. So it brought me back to that church because uh, this is another ritual of them coming together to eat. So it did have something happy for me. Another happy element is that what Tony draws on to make this toast, uh, Livia could not. Mm. So that means that even with the difficulties and the dysfunctions, uh, his kids are better off. So that's one reading for me. And another one is a darker one, which is that one of the reasons that it's hard to focus on the good times in The Sopranos is everybody lies and everybody misremembers the past. And within a few months, whatever responsibility these characters do have for the shit that they've done, I think they will have forgotten. This is a, it's a beautiful finale. It's a beautiful final moment. There's something so charming and there's something David Chase finds uh, intriguing and moving and poignant about the idea that a hardened gangster, a depraved killer, a, a monster by any definition still has to sit down with his kids and have dinner at a restaurant and remember the good times. I mean, this is a guy who uh, goes back to Melfi's office at the, the point of this episode and the lights go out. No, she go vacation. And um, I think the episode does a beautiful job of, as you said, Paul, you had two kind of different readings there. I think much like the duality and the contradictory nature of the show itself, uh, it, it leaves you both feeling kind of hopeful and sweet. Uh, and, you know, I... Th- get emotional thinking about good times with my family going out to eat as a kid AJ's age or Meadow's age or you know even my age now still getting a chance to go out to eat with my with my folks I still who are still with me and doing well but it also there's something about it that also rings hollow because of the environs we're in the storm outside the darkness the 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 people who are here so what a wonderful twisting dual kind of pulling you in different directions way to end in such a simple setting. Absolutely. Final thoughts on I Dream of Jeannie Cusimano, guys. It's been a hell of a season. I don't think there was a weak spot in this season, and I thought this episode threaded it all together perfectly. There's a scene with Father Phil and Artie Bucco, and Father Phil is following up by asking him, you know, what are you, what are you going to do about this situation, about, you know, your feelings of hate? Artie Bucco says, I, I, hate, uh, I hate him. I feel rage. I, I hate all men. Artie says at one point. When Father Phil checks in on him later, he actually says that he's choosing positivity, uh, that he's he's choosing happiness. He says that, you know, there are positive ions and negative ions, and he's basically choosing to be positive. And um, in that moment, I think, not only do we see a powerful moment for that actor, but, but for, for Artie as well, he's doing something that we have learned through Christopher, through Tony, is is an impossible task, very, very difficult to choose to be happy, to have these things happen to you. There's the saying, you know, when something tragic happens in your life, something monumental, you can either let that thing uh, define you, destroy you, or save you, right? That you can you can move forward with this new, al- new knowledge and, and be strengthened by it. And that's what Artie's choosing to do. It's really amazing. And I think for so much of this season, we've underestimated... Uh, Artie Bucco. We've, we've thought of him as a rube, but actually he's a character of enormous strength. Yeah, great great analysis, guys. I have had a great time doing this podcast with you. For our audience's sake, I, I, I want to just let you uh, give you a little inside baseball here before we wrap this up. We uh, weren't sure when we started this podcast what would become of it. 
if if this was going to be just a one season thing to kind of commemorate 20 years since the Sopranos debut, or if we were going to end up going through the whole thing. We've had a lot of conversations about this. We've had a lot of fun doing this, and uh, we've developed a little bit of a following. I want to thank you all for joining us on this journey. Uh, it's been wonderful to see so many of you give us such positive feedback and to revisit this great show. We're happy that we could have uh, joined you on this journey. It gives us a lot of pleasure. So as with that spirit, I'm happy to say that we've decided we are definitely coming back for more. We're going to hop into season two uh, at some point, as soon as possible, ideally. But next episode is going to be a season retrospective. We're going to kind of, we each episode we talked about the individual episodes. The next episode, we're going to talk about season one as a whole, mm. our favorite episodes, our favorite moments, our favorite quotes, our favorite characters, music, direction, you know, all the, the writers. We're just going to get into season one as its own piece rather than each individual episode. Uh, and we're going to break that down next time for you. Uh, but this has been great, guys. I'm Chris D'Amato. I'm Paul Mancini. And I'm Jordan Hugh. And we'll see you for the retrospective, and we will see you for season two. To all of our fans and friends who have joined us this season, we want to extend our deepest thanks here at the Sopranos Podcast. You made it possible for us. We have a lot of fans in the U.S., our fans in the U.K., Australia, and all over the world. Thank you for giving us such wonderful feedback. Please subscribe if you haven't yet. Hit that subscribe button. Give us a five-star review on iTunes. If you don't want to give us a five-star review, email us your productive feedback at the Sopranos Podcast at gmail.com. And please follow us on social media at The Sopranos Podcast, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Please check us out, support us. We are going to be back for more, much more, and we can't wait to bring this quality audio content to you about the best show ever made. This is Chris D'Amato. Once again, thank you all so much for making this season possible.